Have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmela. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode six, the best of the rest of the Wild West. Yeehaw! Carmela, would you like to learn about the best of the Wild West? I was trying to think of something that rhymes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I might have came up with the title before doing most of the research and I would do it again. Because after hours and hours of famine research, we finally have some, insert Gordon Ramsay meme here, Finally, some good fucking cannibalism content. We are back to the good old days of Manifest Destiny in 19th century America and people going places and eating things that they shouldn't. Yeehaw! Third time's the charm, because we've already had some really good tales when it comes to survival cannibalism in this part of the world, with the wagon trains and the gold rush of the American frontier, having already been covered by the Donna Party and Alfred Packer in previous seasons. But those weren't one-off events, Carmela. Oh no. Oh no. They're just the most famous instances of people getting a bit peckish on the plains and eyeing up their travel companions for supper. No, while Donna and Packer have the best publicity, <laughs> I am now going to introduce you to the best of the rest of the Wild West. Yee-haw again! <laughs> this ain't our first rodeo. We're going to start with the entrepreneurial family Charles Alexander and Daniel Blue. Blue like the colour. A.K.A. the Blues Brothers. Yeah! In February 1859, the three men, alongside their cousin John Campbell and their friend Thomas Stevenson, set out for gold. There's gold in them there hills. Exactly. And, beautiful quote incoming, What they found instead was blinding snow, despair, starvation, death and cannibalism. <laughs> Isn't that always the way? Maybe the real friends were the cannibalism we found along the way. As Daniel Blue would later write, and spoilers for which members of the party ultimately survive, quote, Gold has a magic power upon the human mind. Does it? Does it, though? We have seen with the gold rush, a lot of people are willing to up sticks and leave and eat each other to try and get to where they think the gold is. I don't know that it's because gold is like some kind of mesmeric property over humans. I think it's probably just... You know, like human greed. Okay, I'll rephrase that for you. The gold isn't to blame. The gold is innocent in all of this. Capitalism has a magic <laughs> power upon the human mind. There we go. The fortune-seeking blues are certainly tempted, whether it is by gold or capitalism. 
They leave their homes in Illinois. The Blues leave behind their parents, sisters and friends. Alexander leaves a wife and four children. Okay, as you do. Well, what are you going to do? Take them with you. Donner party. Yeah, but they were looking for a new life. That's true. That's true. Not just for gold. It's all just gold, gold, gold for these boys. The men leave Illinois to find the gold fields at Pike's Peak. Where is Pike's Peak? Pike's Peak is in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> yes, that firms things up. I've heard of Colorado. That's a place. It's a state. I know that. Alfred Packer. Yes, the Colorado cannibal. I literally have a line here saying, I know geography isn't our strong point, but as always with Manifest Destiny, go west. Yeah, exactly. So the route they're taking is through Missouri, Kansas, and eventually ending up in Colorado. Those are place names. It's all going west. In a line west. Got in it. a rough line westerly. Got it. In the immortal words of the Blues Brothers themselves, it's 106 miles to Chicago, we've got a full tank, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark out and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. It's actually a thousand miles to Denver. They have a pack pony, 2,000 pounds of flour, and they're stuck in a snowstorm, crucially, not wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, they do only have one pack pony. It starts out quite well for the group. The problems don't really start until they're about halfway at Fort Riley in Kansas. At this point, they've managed to team up with a few more prospectors. Captain John Gibbs, who, quote, knows the way. (laughs) To quote. (laughs) As he has crossed the plains before, his eight men. He eight men? (laughs) (laughs) Why was six afraid of seven? Because seven, eight, nine. I'm amazed that I think that's the first time we've ever made that joke. <laughs> Captain John Gibbs has one more than seven men alongside him. <laughs> and there's also John Currens and George Soley from Ohio. So we're now a group of 16. They're going to band together and get to Denver. There are two choices of route. The Republican River route or the Smoky Hill route. I like those. Those are descriptive terms. Pick one. Ooh, it's got to be Smoky Hill. This is also the route that Gibbs, who has done this journey before, advocates for. It's 500 miles, and the Republican River route is 600 miles. Okay. The gang take the Smoky Hill route. Oh, have I chosen the wrong route? (laughs) One of my sources does sort of point out that they were probably fucked whichever route they took. Okay, few, few. But, Daniel, I've never been to Kansas before Blue, would later write that he was certain that, quote, we should meet with calamity if we took the Smoky Hill route. Which, I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but Daniel Blue is, as you may tell, going to suffer from main character syndrome. <laughs> This is Daniel's story and we're all just living in it. Oh, yes. And I will hand over to Daniel. 
because this route turns out to be, I'd say a mistake, but the whole Gold Rush movement does seem to be quite flawed to begin with. Mm. Quote, What should have been a grand adventure became an endurance contest, a merciless wearing away of flesh, bone and human determination to live. And, at the end, a nightmare too horrible to contemplate. Yes! I feel like we haven't done enough voices this season, mostly because we've had some very serious famine episodes. Uh, So thank you for that. Okay, well, my one bad stock American accent might come out more. We'll see. (laughs) The Blues and Friends have actually set out much earlier in the season than one would normally expect. They set out in February. That is earlier than one would normally expect. It's snowstorm time. Our intrepid band of prospectors don't have any tents. Oh. They'd bought one and then left it behind. Intentionally? Yes. Cool. Yeah, you can sort of see that this might not end well. Ignoring what podcast this is. (laughs) They're running out of food. The most shelter they have, for the most part, are just woolen blankets. And after about ten days, provisions are, not surprisingly, starting to run out. While Gibbs and his men are out hunting, the Blues Brothers, and I'm just using the Blues Brothers now as the catch-all for the original five, and everyone that then comes along with them, Okay, cool. They can be honorary brothers. Yes, yes. The Blues Brothers, which in this instance is the original five and George Soley, just abandon the men who are hunting and decide to carry on. Seems like that means they won't get any food. I'm sure there must be a reason, but it doesn't seem like a sensible one. They're later joined by another three men, so we're up to nine Blues Brothers, but no pony. Oh. They don't eat it. Oh. They lose it. (laughs) I mean, it's so easy to misplace a pony, you know. Happens all the time. But it's okay. I can't imagine morale is particularly high, but up until March, they're getting by. And then Alexander falls sick. Not enough to stop the party from moving, but the decision is made to lighten the load. Keep only the bare essentials. I thought you meant that they were just going to discard Alexander. Oh, just wait. (laughs) Come on, it's only another 55 miles to Denver. They'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, sounds, sounds right. Their geography is at about our level. It's 170 miles to Denver. Oh... They finish the last of their provisions, but because they're so close, they don't stop to hunt. Yeah, that doesn't matter. They can march on an empty belly for like a day, right? And then there's a four-day snowstorm. Classic of the genre. They push on through because, as you've said, only another day to go. They're nearly there. Not only are they not nearly there, but when the snowstorm clears they realise that they have, in fact, been travelling in a circle. No! All that energy 
absolutely nothing to show for it. I'm just imagining them walking past the stuff they discarded to lighten the load. Maybe the pony. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't think they loop back to pick up their stuff. Oh, okay. It may be a happier ending if they had. Because now Charles Blue is also sick. That'll happen. At this point, two of the party decide to skedaddle out of there. And the remaining seven lie down and engage in a popular pastime of the genre. Prayer? Talking about food while starving to death. That one. Oh, for something nourishing to eat. Oh, indeed. But conversation also allegedly turned practical. Quote, All then agreed that whichever of us should die first should be eaten by the rest. I'm glad they all agreed. Again, we have precisely one source. Yes, so certainly at least Daniel agreed. Daniel did agree. They keep trying. They try and keep going. They even try and hunt. Now, I know I've slightly laid into Daniel as having main character syndrome. He's the one who thinks the route is dangerous. He's the one that says, while he would willingly starve to death, he would not allow another to die just to keep him alive. And while it would be Daniel who would later carry his ailing brothers in his arms. Oh, goodness, this sounds like the cover of a Bills and Boone book. I do want to give Daniel Blue some kudos for, in his own account, including the time that he nearly shot Thomas Stevenson by dropping his gun in his direction. Wait, didn't that happen to the Donner Party as well? Yeah. Please, don't just carry around your loaded guns. Come on, guys. Own your mistakes. A good moral to this story. It will come up later, but there's a wonderful little table on the Wikipedia page for the Oregon Trail, which says all of the various causes of death. (laughs) And it's accidental gunfire, quite a lot of them. Accidental gunfire and... People getting run over by wagons going one mile an hour. (laughs) It's the horrible history of stupid deaths. I mean, there's a lot of dysentery as well, but, you know. Eventually, despite Daniel's hunting attempts, Alexander says that my race is run. I have gone as far as I can. And the party splits again. Thomas Stevenson, friend... John Campbell, cousin, and John Scott, sir, not appearing in this show. He is not relevant other than (laughs) this one name drop. They carry on. But the Cole brothers and George, they are too weak to continue. It's the end of the road for Soli, who dies after saying, take my body and eat as much as you can and thus preserve your lives. Definitely he said that. 100% verifiable fact. I mean, that's what my last words are going to be, regardless of circumstance. (laughs) I just want to do mind games with them. (laughs) But again, I'm going to hand over to Daniel. Daniel, take it away. We were not strong enough to inter the corpse. Neither had we pick or shovel with which to dig a grave. 
The body laid there for three days, we lying helpless on the ground near it, our craving for food increasing. Until, driven by desperation, wild with hunger, feeling that self-preservation is the first law of nature, we took our knives and commenced cutting the flesh from the legs and arms of our dead companion. The classic cuts of meat. Oh, we can't do it, we can't do it. Oh, okay, yeah, go for it. Oh, no, I couldn't possibly start with the legs. (laughs) (laughs) They ate with, quote, ego relish. Okay. But a few days later, Alexander would die too. Oh, he was the one who was ill originally, right? Yeah. Okay. Do you know what time it is? (laughs) Dinner time? It's gastronomic incest time. Oh, yes. The uncontrollable and maddening cravings of hunger impelled Charles and I to devour a part of our own brother's corpse. It was a terrible thing to do, but we were not in a condition of mind or heart to do as we or other men would have done amid ordinary circumstances. We were considerably strengthened by the food, and, taking some with us, we resumed our journey. They packed meat, prickly pears and tree bark, and with this new sustenance continued west. Delicious. Although they weren't so strengthened by the food that Charles wouldn't also die a few days later. Oh. He writes a note to his father before death, for once not actually mentioning the cannibalism, but saying that he was dying for, quote, want of a little food... Just a spot of lunch, you know. And writing that he hopes that they may all meet in heaven. So at least we can infer that Charles didn't blame himself or think of survival cannibalism as something innately sinful. Yeah, he didn't think it was a barrier. That's good. That's good to know. It's nice to know that he died not being terrified of going to hell. Genuinely. (laughs) The problem is I know what sentence I'm going to say next. Oh. After three days, Daniel gave in to his hunger and allegedly cracked open his brother's skull to eat the brain matter. Right. Daniel, reckon maybe that one's not so good. Wait, I thought Daniel was the only survivor. He admitted to this? Yeah. Cool. He ate his brother's flesh and drank from the nearby Beaver Creek, only to pass out. I mean, after all, he has had a very stressful time. Indeed. Luckily for Daniel, a member of the Afaro tribe came across him in his near-unconscious state, took him in and gave him food and shelter. And once Daniel was strong enough, he escorted him to a passing wagon train. Strangely, once Daniel made it to Denver, of all things, he found the pony that they'd lost on the plains. Huh. Wait a minute. I mean, for example, I love my dogs. I love them very much. But if I saw another black greyhound in the street, I wouldn't necessarily know that it wasn't Alfie, my mum's greyhound. You know what I'm saying? Like, how is it just a pony? How does he know it's the same one? Are they that distinctive? Apparently so. Apparently he can recognise it as the same pony. Maybe the pony recognised him. 
<laughs> this is very strangely one of the subplots to Cannibal the Musical. <laughs> Apparently the pony had been found by other prospectors and brought to Denver and then sold on. Okay. Well, I'm glad they could reunite. It seems so bizarre that it has to be real. The gold rush turns out to be a bit of a washout for Daniel. To be honest, the Blues Brothers probably never even had the strength, tools, knowledge or capital to set up the gold mining operation that they wanted. Yeah. Captain Gibbs had made it to Denver as well. He was, in fact, mining gold. And he and Daniel sat and spoke and concluded that of the 16 men, there were likely only five survivors. Those are some tough odds. All in all, not a success. One last Blues Brothers joke before we move on. You know what they say about Manifest Destiny? They're on a mission from God. I had too much fun looking up <laughs> Blues Brothers quotes for this section. <laughs> I have to say that God did not protect them well on that mission. Now, we don't have time to hang about. We've got more frontier cannibalism to be getting on with. I would like to introduce you to John C. Fremont. Yes, that does have an accent above the E, and no, I don't know what the C stands for. John C. Fremont. Fremont. Fremont is a typical wannabe explorer type in the mid-19th century. Typical. Born in 1813, not very good at school, but quite good at maths. And this lands him a job in the Navy. Okay. Always a good place to learn about survival cannibalism. And a good place to learn about like navigation and stuff. There are other there are other useful talents one takes from the Navy as well as just survival cannibalism. Funny you should mention that, because he then moves on to work for the Corps of Topographical Engineers, helping the US Army map and survey territory. Oh, well, there we go. This sounds like he's set up pretty well, but I assume that it doesn't pay off. <laughs> Exhibit A, Casting Lots of Survival Cannibalism podcast. It does take a little bit of the tension out of these stories when they're on this podcast, right? So we can probably guess what happens. <laughs> now, the territory being surveyed isn't necessarily American territory, but... Come on, we knew that anyway. It's 1840s America. They're deciding it's their territory. Fremont does make quite a name for himself in the whole Manifest Destiny department. It doesn't hurt that his father-in-law is a senator. Oh ho! Now let's just ignore the fact that Fremont and his wife Jessie met and eloped when she was 15. And how old was he at the time? Decidedly not 15. Hmm... Initially, Senator Benton, his father-in-law, wasn't too happy with Fremont because of the whole 15-year-old daughter thing. But Fremont worked under famous frontiersman Kit Carson. He helped to map the Oregon Trail. He took part in a great number of expeditions. You can't stay mad at him then. How bad can he be? Water under the bridge. In total, Fremont led five expeditions west. He helped to cover a greater area than any other explorer of his day. Okay. Still still not gonna, you know, ignore everything else, but sure, okay. That's an achievement. 
we're going to be looking at his fourth expedition. The first one he did without Kit Carson. Could these two things be linked? Oh! The catastrophic failure and the great frontiersman not accompanying him? No, I think it must be a coincidence. Who can say? It's also worth noting that Fremont had faced court-martial in 1847 and was found guilty of disobedience towards a superior officer and military misconduct. He's a man with perhaps something to prove? And perhaps a little impulsive could be inferred from that? A good way to think about Fremont is if you mash together the Trans-Saharan Railway Expedition and Greeley. It's all going to go really well then. In 1848, Fremont set out to survey a potential railroad route between St. Louis, Missouri and San Francisco, California. Oh, another railroad? Hoo-hoo! This takes us right through the heart of cannibalism country. Yeah! This was something that his father-in-law was really quite keen on. (laughs) Railways rather than cannibalism, I assume. He's going to get one of the two. (laughs) The expedition ends up being self-funded because the federal government don't want anything to do with it. Always a good start. A bit of analysis of Fremont's character here, just in case you want to take the measure of the man. Yes, yes, please. Let's measure him up. Fremont was a relentless self-promoter. He could not follow orders, keep promises, or admit mistakes. He was a philanderer. He exhibited bouts of cold callousness and tolerated genocidal acts. (laughs) God, that's not a strong character summary, is it? Spoilers for the ending. But later in life, he runs as the Republican Party presidential candidate. (laughs) You cannot make it up. Ah, Honestly. Okay. But back in the October of 1848, Fremont and 34 men head west. They're looking to find an all-season railroad route through the mountains. I don't know that they will find it. They can certainly look. It's not like it's already been predicted to be a bad winter. And it's not like Freeman hasn't been able to get Kit Carson. And it's not like Freeman has actually had to hire the more eccentric wild men, such as Uncle Dick Wooten or Old Bill Williams to be his guides. Is it actually exactly like all of those things? It is exactly like all of those things, yeah, because all the other guides um, won't come. Aha. They make it through the Sangre de Cristo range, which is already far too steep for a railroad to even be contemplated, and the guide Wooten has already turned back due to the impossibility of further travel. I used to have a dog called Wooten. He was a basset hound called Wooten Basset. Oh, He could be my guide. (laughs) Well, Fremont doesn't think so, because who needs guides, right? Yeah, yeah, just go your own way. Old Bill Williams also turns back. Some sources say that Fremont's guide lost their way, but personally, I owe 
more towards the fact that these men who made their living off knowing the land told Fremont something he didn't want to hear, so he get going and they skedaddled. I think that sounds more likely. Things deteriorate quite quickly from there. With blinding snow and freezing temperatures, it doesn't take long until people can go no further. Nearly 120 mules and pack animals die in the winter on the mountains. Some literally freeze to death in the snowstorms. So the fact you looked over my shoulder really <laughs> creeped me out. Sorry. Then. That wasn't intentional. <laughs> that was me considering how many mules that was. <laughs> that was like a distant look in my eyes. I was like, that's a lot of mules. <laughs> There's nothing there. There's not the ghosts of 150 mules. <laughs> some literally freezing to death in the snows others being killed for food with provisions already low and well there's not much to hunt in the mountains so the men eat their own moccasins conditions were so poor and the men so weak it took over an hour for 300 yards to be navigated by december but still freeman continued or at least tried to He only acknowledged the devastating conditions and the need for resupply, not even the end of the expedition, just resupply, by the 22nd of December. But by then the party had fragmented. The only hope was a rescue party, made up of the strong and loyal men, to go back and bring help. Four men, led by 25-year-old Henry King, headed down the mountain on Boxing Day. It would only be by the February of 1849 that the final survivors would emerge from the mountains. Ten men have died. They're not doing well. Freeman would be the person to discover the fate that had befallen his rescue party because he headed out after about 16 days to try and find the first rescue party. Did he find them? He found three of them. Mm-hmm. Henry King had been, quote, horribly devoured, and after dying of exhaustion and fatigue, quote, his comrades had fed upon him. Freeman was able to push on, eventually managing to send back help to those stuck in the mountains. Nearly a third of Freeman's expedition are dead, deaths caused hopefully, by starvation and hypothermia, but there are allegations that Fremont deliberately left men behind to die. Oh, a sort of save-yourself kind of thing. This has the dubious honour of being the first recorded case of cannibalism in Colorado. Ah, win for the team. A whole 25 years before Packer. Oh, Packer, so, so behind the fashions. As much as Freeman would try to brush aside the survival cannibalism in his history, his literal obituary in the Daily Alta California in 1890 reads in part that he set out on a fourth expedition across the continent at his own expense. The party lost their way while trying to cross the Sierras and suffered terribly from cold and hunger. It is related that they were driven to cannibalism. All horses and one third of his men had perished. What a way to be remembered. His literal obituary. (laughs) 
But, like I mentioned earlier, Fremont would try and use his non-cannibalism-related clout, obviously before his death, to secure the Republican nomination for president and stand for election in 1856. He would ultimately lose to James Buchanan. But speaking of the President of the United States, this actually wouldn't be the first time that cannibalism had come up at the ballot box. Oh ho. And let's not forget that George W. Bush Sr. came very close to it in our episode on the Pacific War. Well, let's take a look at which president may have been on the other side of the table. Yes, please. Back in 1828, President John Quincy Adams was facing Andrew Jackson in a fight to the political death. It was a dirty fight, one made dirtier by the fact that this was actually a rematch between the two men from the 1824 presidential election. There's no rap musical about it, so it might be a bit hard to explain. There's no rap musical about it. Yet. (laughs) Good point. And we're the ones to write it. No, no, we're not. (laughs) But basically, picture the part in Hamilton, the, well, he's never going to be president now, never going to be president now. I am sorry to David Diggs. (laughs) And as an atonement, everyone should go and watch Snowpiercer on Netflix. It has David Diggs and cannibalism in. Yeah. But that section... Never going to be president now. Pamphlets being thrown everywhere. Scurrilous rumour abound. Imagine those pamphlets are cannibalism accusations. Yes, please. Because that, my friends, is exactly what happened with the coffin handbills. The coffin handbills were quite simply an attack on Andrew Jackson, focusing in on all of his flaws, both real and imagined and a lot of this emphasised his military career during the War of 1812. Aha! With the name Coffin Handbills coming from the six black coffins adoring the pamphlet, representing six militiamen Jackson had executed, and amid his bloody deeds that featured in the supplemental account of some of the bloody deeds of General Jackson... Only some of them. ...was the charge... Of cannibalism. Ha ha! Jackson was, quote, a man-eating monster, and following a massacre of Native Americans in 1814, Jackson had ordered, quote, his bowmen to dress a dozen of these bodies for his breakfast, which he devoured without leaving even a fragment. Yeah, that sounds true. He ate 12 bodies for breakfast. 100% reliable source there. Oh, just wait until the next bit of cannibalism that Andrew Jackson does. (laughs) Oh, he didn't stop there. Okay. He also ate, quote, the whole six men at one meal, three exclamation marks. (laughs) Yes, my shuddering countryman. He swallowed them whole. (laughs) Coffins and all, (laughs) without the slightest attempt at mastication. (laughs) Six exclamation marks. I love that that's not even trying to be believable. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I can't see any reason that political propaganda could contain any mistruths at all. (laughs) 
where he just unhinges his jaw like a snake. It's very little, little known fact, but he was a superhuman. We have a PDF copy of the supplemental account of some of the bloody deeds of General Jackson. Do feel free to have a read. Some of them are quite impressive. But anyway, when the musical Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson originated on Broadway, (laughs) Jackson was played by none other than Benjamin Walker, otherwise known as Captain George Pollard from the better, less spoken about film adaptation of In the Heart of the Sea. Wow! So that's all the confirmation I need that Jackson was a cannibal. How have I never heard of this musical? Sounds amazing. Bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. Is it available on Spotify? I don't know. Oh, we're looking that up. (laughs) But now, quickly, we're going to pick up the trail of some of the wild men of the Wild West. These being Big Phil, a.k.a. Charles Gardner, a.k.a. the Colorado Cannibal. Wait, another one? Colorado is cannibalism country. You can't be the Colorado cannibal if there are multiple ones. John Jeremiah Garrison Johnston, a.k.a. Liver-Eating Johnson. (laughs) What did he do? And Levi Boone Helm, a.k.a. the Kentucky Cannibal. I'm I'm sensing a naming pattern here. A slight convention. All three of these men were noted mountain men of the American Old West. And I'm not sure if you could tell from the subtlety of their nicknames. But allegedly, all three of them did eat human flesh. What, really? In some cases, this is even alleged to be for survival purposes. No. Not just for, like, fun. (laughs) Liver-eating Johnson is the easiest to refute, or at least to disregard for our purposes as his cannibalistic ways originated, allegedly, as an act of revenge following the death of his wife. Okay. His wife is killed in 1847, and Johnson swears revenge on the entirety of the Aberosca people by killing them and... Eating their livers? Eating their livers. Now, did his wife's liver get tampered with or it like for what purpose an eye for an eye is it a liver for a liver the liver as an organ was what connected the abraska people to the afterlife so by defiling their bodies and eating their livers he was denying them salvation in this life or the next so yeah that sounds like a racist serial killer more than a survival cannibal I've only been able to find one unsourced account that says after being captured once by some of the Blackfoot people, he managed to escape after cutting off a guard's leg and ate that out in the wilderness. Takeaway meal? Yeah, sure. That was terrible. (laughs) Now, is he technically a member of the Elite League of Survival Cannibals, or is he just a racist dick? The two are not always mutually exclusive, Alex. (laughs) Good point. It is, in fact, hard to tell. In a similar vein, I know we've talked before about whether intentionally killing someone only to decide to eat them after 
makes you a murderer or a prepared survivalist? Mm. And this is the question when it comes to Boone Helm, the Kentucky cannibal. Should we not be making bad taste Kentucky fried human jokes? I hadn't even considered it. I was mostly focusing on that we do love a boon in this podcast. We do, we do. Another for the Bills and Boon canon. In most literature, Boon is referred to as a serial killer who ate his victims to survive. Okay, so the motivation is serial killing and the survival is a bonus? Incidental? Okay. Boone was born in 1828 and he, like so many others, moved west in the 1850s to seek gold in California. And then there heels. And like so many others, this doesn't go well for Boone. Or rather, doesn't go well for his prospecting companions. Yes, I was going to say, sounds like the other guys got the rough end of that one. In 1853, in the mountains of eastern Oregon, after a bad winter, and the alleged suicide of one of his fellow travellers, Boone, like a hyena, preyed upon the dead body of his companion. Very like a hyena. Cackling as he did it? Most likely, one would presume. And so began Boone's cereal spree which incidentally provided him with food. In Boone's own words... Oh, God. <clears throat> Many's the poor devils I've killed at one time or another, and the time has been that I've been obliged to feed on some of them. So at least he's honest. Yeah, very to the point. Finally, let's turn to Big Phil. Please, I, I love this guy's name. Big Phil. The fact that his actual name is Charles Gardiner, <laughs> which has nothing to do with Big Phil. Where does Phil come from? Well, he comes from Philadelphia. Oh. <laughs> I think we've solved something there. <laughs> that was good. That was Big Phil heads out west in 1844, allegedly having escaped to Philadelphia prison, where he had been incarcerated for murder. En route to his new life, he falls in with some army deserters, and after the men were chased out of town following a violent robbery gone wrong, Big Phil gets his first taste of human flesh. His companions were captured, killed, and thrown on an open fire, and Phil, having missed the wagon train and not eaten for many days, ate this pre-cooked meat for him before carrying on his journey. This first cannibalistic meal isn't regularly included in Big Phil's culinary exploits, and it's generally noted that Phil had three victims. In fact, Phil, who was noted for his ruffianly disposition and acts, made no secret of the fact that he had, in emergency, turned cannibal, said that he had killed and eaten two Native Americans and one white man, a Frenchman. Oh, well, all is forgiven. A very important distinction to make, I'm sure. Big Phil is apparently a bit of a connoisseur in the survival cannibalism genre, who thought that heads, hand and feet tasted good when, quote, thoroughly cooked. Okay. 
but other parts of the body were, quote, too grizzly and tough. An interesting opinion there from Big Phil, very contrary to the standard where those are the bits you discard because they look too human. Are we saying that this is perhaps exaggerated for dramatic effect and that's not what someone who had resorted to cannibalism to survive would say? Yes, perhaps that's the explanation. Ultimately, these stories may or may not be true. There's probably a nugget of truth in all of them. People did occasionally eat human flesh to survive in the Wild West. No, never! But we knew that anyway. I've got one more tale to tide us over before we leave America. Let's hit the wagon train. Yes, please. The Uta van Ornum party, made up of 12 wagons, 18 men, 5 women and 21 children, are on the Oregon Trail heading west. That's a lot of children. Don't like where this is headed. Well, west. <laughs> <laughs> Geography. <laughs> it's the September of 1860, and they have already been travelling for four months. In fact, for some of August, they'd even been escorted along route by a company of dragoons, but the escort turned back near the Ohio-Oregon border. On September 8th, three men from the Uta Van Ornum party are killed in a skirmish with a group of Shushun and Bannock men. They keep heading west. You know, manifest destiny. They've got to get there. They've got to get to the West. Destiny is not on the pioneers' side. On September 10th, the attack continues, and as more men are killed, the decision is made to abandon the wagons to leave the livestock and goods to the attacking Native Americans and to flee on foot. Yeah, it's that thing, like, if you're mugged, you should give them your handbag and run but on a much larger scale. <laughs> yeah. Most people flee on foot. Elijah Uta is wounded, and his wife and all four children stay with him. Ah, that's a bad idea, but how nice. They literally all die by the end of this next sentence. <laughs> okay. At this point, there are 27 survivors who have left almost all their worldly goods behind them in the wagons, including, obviously... All their food. Yep. Starvation Camp is built by the bank of the Uhi River. I mean, they don't call it that, but I think we can guess what's coming. Um, do they all find a lot of food and have a nice meal together? <laughs> do they uh, um, find a lot of food that isn't each other? <laughs> Let's see, shall we? A few men go on ahead to try and seek help. They actually find some survivors of the original attack. They even kill a horse and send the meat back to the hungry camp. Oh, that's nice. Why they don't walk the horse to camp <laughs> and then kill it, I don't know. You know, you've got you to gotta strike those horses whilst you can. They're slippery bastards. But Christopher Trimble, what a name, ends up having to abandon some of the meat because... It's too heavy and he's too weak. Yeah, yeah, they should have just sent the horse back. Like, horses can famously carry all of their own meat. <laughs> They're well known for it. During this time, and the dates are a little unclear, a small group of the Shoshone, 
I don't believe any of the original attacking party. They assist the makeshift camp. They trade knickknacks for fresh salmon. Nice. Now, because there's always one, Daniel Chase, who has survived this far, dies. Either from eating too much salmon (laughs) or of the hiccups. (laughs) Maybe the large amount of salmon gave him hiccups and then he died. That does seem to be the story. A lot of the sources try and blame the shoeshine. And I'm like, no. Like they gave him poisoned salmon or? They never imply that. It's just that he ate too much of their salmon. Those bastards. They should have cut him off. (laughs) Could they not see he was suffering from salmon poisoning? (laughs) Anyway, uh, no comment, but uh, he's dead. (laughs) Now, the survivors are out of trading goods. They're out of food and they're out of luck. So it's cannibalism time. In the words of Edward Greary, the Superintendent of Indian Affairs, Portland, Oregon, and we've done really well with not using inappropriate language, but that is a job title. He states that for 10 days previous to their discovery, they had subsisted upon human flesh, the bodies of those who perished. As the survivors began to starve, initially they ate whatever could be found by the river. Unable to fish, they ate herbs, frogs, mussels, weeds and grass. Why were they unable to fish? They just weren't skilled. They didn't have any fishing equipment, having left all of their worldly goods on the wagons. But you can make some fishing equipment. What do you expect these pioneers to do? Pioneer? (laughs) A bit of salmon bane on some of your hair? That's a rod. That's the line you can put. No, no, I don't know. I feel like this is now a challenge. (laughs) Go forth, Carmella and Fish. (laughs) I'm just saying that, you know, RIP to them, but I'm different. Mr. Death by Hiccups was the first to die at camp, and he was buried. But after ten days, four more survivors would die. Four of the children. Elizabeth and Susan Trimble, and Danny and Albert Chase. Quote, Unpleasant, quote, The living were compelled to eat the dead to preserve their own lives. It was a subject of much an anxious consultation, and even the prayer before the eating of the dead was fully determined upon. This determination was unanimous. The flesh of the dead was carefully husbanded and eaten sparingly to make it go as far as possible. Smart. Thus, the bodies of four children were disposed of. Oh, well, how convenient. We have written testimony that Mrs Chase, quote, helped to eat her own children. Yeah, gastronomic incest. That's what we like to see. Ding, ding, ding. A report from the Dallas correspondent to the Portland Daily then says that after the Shushoin dug up the body of Daniel Chase, the survivors, quote, made up their minds to try and eat him. What, for what purpose did they dig him up? Was it not enough that they fed him all that salmon? These sick bastards, what do they want from him? Allegedly, they were stealing all of his clothes. Personally, I think there's a bit of 
inconsistency between sources at just how Daniel Chase's body was dug up because some of them blame the shoeshine, others in a very passive way just say that the body was exhumed. Yes. Someone, someone exhumed the body and ate it. Don't know who. Well, we know who ate (laughs) it. The survivors made up their minds to try and eat him. So we cut him in small pieces, a day's ration in a piece. But before we began roasting, Captain Denton Party came along, just in time to save us from that awful meal. (laughs) And it does appear that from those several sources I mentioned, that the emaciated survivors were about to eat the exhumed body of Daniel Chase, just as rescue came along. That rescue doesn't arrive in the shape of Captain Frederick Dent at Starvation Camp until October 24th. Of those who tried to make their own way back to safety, all barring two would either die of starvation, be taken prisoner, or be killed by the Shushoin. In total, there would only be 15 survivors of the Uta Party massacre, 25 deaths and 4 abductions. I don't know how we don't talk about this one more, because granted, it took me a while to find all the sources for it, but they're definitely there. The survival cannibalism is authenticated, recognised by the American government. Granted, we have sidestepped quite a lot of the racism in this one, and actually in quite a few of our stories in general, but I feel that the Uta Party massacre could have been an episode on its own. Yeah, that was a pretty pretty good story. So that's the best of the rest of survival cannibalism in the Wild West. It has been quite a ride. But just remember, don't overdose on salmon. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 6 on the best of the rest of the Wild West. What a fest we just expressed. We'll leave you some time to digest. <laughs> Join us next time for a Siberian folk hero. The man, the myth, the legend. Literally. Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod, and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review, and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmella, with post-production and editing also by Carmella and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett. Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network.